Good evening, everyone. Uh, my name is Isaac, and I serve here on staff at UCLA GOC. Um, I was once a student here at UCLA, and I sat in these very seats that you guys are sitting in right now. I listened to a professor stand right here and ramble on about organic chemistry, biochemistry, resonance structures, science stuff. Uh, and if you told me as a student that one day I would be standing here opening God's word to you, I would have laughed and said, haha, funny joke. Um, I never thought that I would be serving on staff here at UCLA, but by God's grace tonight, I have the joy of opening God's word with you tonight. When I was a child, one of my favorite times were when my parents went to work in the summer and I was left home alone. I was an only child, and so when they were gone, freedom. I could do anything I wanted. I could watch TV all day. I could play video games, Nintendo, PC games, Game Boy, whatever. Whatever I wanted, it was mine to do. However, my parents always wanted me to do something. Of course, they wouldn't want me to waste my time every day watching TV and playing video games. And so I had to do things like practice piano, finish some math problems, read some books, and clean my room. But usually in the bliss of my video gaming and TV watching, those things were quickly set aside. And I thought to myself, my parents are coming later. I have all the time in the world to do you know, other things, the things that I want to do. And of course, time would come and 4 p.m. would arrive and I thought to myself, oh, they're probably coming home soon. And so I would quickly run to my room, throw everything in the closet, close it, and the room was clean. I'd play a couple of keys on the piano and then I had practiced. Of course, they would come home and ask me what I had done and be completely unsatisfied with my work for the day. And if you're anything like me, that's a little bit about how we think about Christ's return. We think that he is coming later. And I know he is coming later, but by later I mean much, much later. We tell ourselves there's so many other things that I want to do with my life. I want to get married. I want to have an awesome career. I need to study hard and get good grades. I want to do this. I want to do that. And we live life without having eternity in view. We tend to live as though Christ's return is not imminent. Turn with me to Luke 19. Luke 19, verse 11 is where we'll, we'll be for tonight. And this week, we've, we've been studying parables this summer, and we have come to the parable of the minas. And my hope for tonight is that this parable will serve as an encouragement for some, warnings for others, and a reminder for all of us that Christ is coming back as king. Luke 19, we'll start at verse 9 for some context. Luke 19, 9. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, because he too is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. While they were listening to these things, Jesus went on to tell a parable, because he was near Jerusalem, and they supposed that the kingdom of God was going to appear immediately. 
So he said, a nobleman went to a distant country to receive a kingdom for himself and then return. And he called 10 of his slaves and gave them 10 minas and said to them, do business with this until I come back. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we do not want this man to reign over us. When he returned after receiving the kingdom, he ordered that these slaves to whom he had given the money be called to him so that he might know what business they had done. The first appeared saying, master, your mina has made 10 minas more. And he said to him, well done, good slave, because you have been faithful in a very little thing, you are to be an authority over 10 cities. The second came saying, your mina master has made five minas. And he said to him also, you are also to be over five cities. Another came saying, master, here is your mina, which I kept put away in a handkerchief. For I was afraid of you because you are an exacting man. You take up what you did not lay down and you reap what you did not sow. He said to him, by your own words, I will judge you, you worthless slave. Did you know that I am an exacting man taking up what I did not lay down and reaping what I did not sow? Then why did you not put my money in the bank and having come, I would have collected it with interest? Then he said to the bystanders, take the mina away from him and give it to the one who has the 10 minas. And they said to him, master, he has 10 minas already. I tell, that, tell you that to everyone who has, more shall be given, but from the one who does not have, even what he does have shall be taken away. But these enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slay them in my presence. Verses 11 to 27, Jesus tells us about the parable of the minas. And we've been going through parables these past couple weeks. And just to make it clear, if it hasn't been clear already, that the reason Jesus spoke in parables was to make things evident to those who were faithful and those who were willing to seek to learn more and to make things unclear to those who were not. And the context of this passage is this parable comes right after the story of Zacchaeus. And if you grew up in the church, you're probably quite familiar with the story of Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus was a wee little man and a wee little man was he. And he climbed up a tree to see Jesus, and Jesus calls him out. Zacchaeus repents and is saved. And verse 9 says this, Today salvation has come to this house, because he too is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which is lost. It's this last statement that might be troubling to those who are listening to Jesus. Jesus explicitly tells his audience that he came to seek and to save that which was lost. And to us as Christians, this is not news. We know that Jesus came to die on the cross to save us. Mark 10, 45 says, for even the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. But what Jesus is saying here is not something that the people were expecting. They expect that Jesus is approaching Jerusalem and he's going to overturn Roman rule. He's going to bring the kingdom of God immediately. They expected the literal, earthly, messianic kingdom. And Jesus says, I came to seek and to save that which was lost. 
He didn't say he came to bring about political correctness. He didn't say that he was going to come to bring about a solution to poverty. He came to seek and to save that which was lost. In verse 11, we read that Jesus knows this, and this is what the people were thinking. And so he said, and it reads, while they were listening to these things, Jesus went on to tell a parable because he was near Jerusalem and they supposed the kingdom of God was going to appear immediately. Jesus wants to correct their thinking and let them know that he's actually going to leave first and then return. He's not going to establish the kingdom now. He needs to leave and then return. And as I said earlier for us, and when we listen to this parable, we don't necessarily have the same issues that the audience listening had. We have quite the opposite. Jesus is already gone. He's not here. We're not physically following him to Jerusalem today. And so we don't have the temptation to think that the kingdom of God is here. Instead, we tend to forget that Jesus is coming soon. And so this parable is a reminder for us that he's coming back. And as we'll see in the parable, that he will hold us all accountable. Just as a side note, uh, this parable is called the parable of the minas. Uh, It may sound familiar to you because it sounds very similar to another parable called the parable of the talents. And though they sound very similar, they take place in very different places. This one takes place in Jericho. And in Matthew, the parable of talents takes place in Jerusalem. They have different characters. They have a different lesson and meaning. And so we begin with our story, the parable of the minas. And our story begins with Mr. Nobleman. Mr. Nobleman, he went to a distant country to receive a kingdom for himself. And the people listening to this parable would have been familiar with this scenario. A similar situation had happened in Judea. When Herod the Great died, his kingdom was divided among his three sons. His son Archelaus was made ruler over Judea. And in order for Archelaus to be given the title of king, he first had to go to Rome in order to receive authority to rule in Judea. And those who are listening to Jesus would know that this is kind of what Jesus might be referring to. When Jesus talks about a nobleman going to a distant country to receive a kingdom, this would be on their minds. It's as though after getting elected governor of California, our new governor would have to go all the way to Washington, D.C. to get sworn in, and then the president would then bestow on him the authority to rule this state. And so before leaving for his journey, this nobleman calls 10 of his slaves, The word slave for us has kind of a lot of baggage, but in Jesus' time, these slaves are basically 10 trusted employees. He gives them each one mina. And now a mina is not a small sum of money, but it's not also a dollar, and it's not a million dollars either. It's around three months' wages. And his parting instructions to his slaves were, do business with this until I come back. And so they're supposed to use this money he's given to trade, to do business, to make a profit. In verse 14, we meet the enemies of this kingdom. They're called the citizens. For some reason, they don't like this nobleman. They actually send a delegation after him, hoping to appeal to a higher authority and tell him, tell whoever's giving him the kingdom, we don't like this guy. We don't want him as king and we want him, we don't want him to rule over us. They're trying to say, don't make him our king. Hashtag, not my nobleman. (laughs) Unfortunately for them, 
the nobleman successfully obtains the kingdom despite the protests of the citizens, and, return, and he returned to see what business they had done. And the text doesn't show how long this was, but it's definitely more than a day's journey. And he wants to know what happened in his absence. And so in verse 16, we meet Mr. Faithful. Mr. Faithful comes saying, Master, your mina has made 10 minas more. Wow, that's a thousand return on investment. Well done, good slave. Because you have been faithful in a very little thing, one mina, you are to be an authority over 10 cities. Wow, that's amazing. This nobleman is extremely generous. Not only does he give them one mina to do business, he has now entrusted this slave with 10 cities. And then a second one comes and says, your mina has made five minas. Wow, 500% return on investment. And the master rewards him accordingly with five cities. After this, we meet Mr. Unfaithful. Here is your mina, which I have kept in a handkerchief. What? Did you say I put it in a bank, chief? No, a, a handkerchief. <laughs> I was afraid of you because you are an exacting man. You take up what you did not lay down and you reap what you did not sow. Is that an accurate description of the master? Is the nobleman a hard man? It seems from the text that he's given 10 servants, 10 minas. He's giving away his money. He's trusting them with this. And what more, he's even rewarded his servants who are faithful quite generously. And so I don't think that this is an accurate description of the master. I don't think he's an exacting man. And I don't think he steals. He doesn't take what he didn't sow. But the master ever tells him, I will judge you by your own words. Your words, not mine. If you thought that I was as you think, wouldn't you have worked harder? If you had a hard boss, would you just do nothing? Or would you work even harder out of fear? And so because of this, the master tells the bystanders to take the mina away from him and give it to the one who has 10 minas. They say to him, master, he has 10 minas already. And the master replies, I tell you that to everyone who has, more shall be given. But to the one who does not have, even what he does have shall be taken away. But these enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slay them in my presence. What does this all mean? What does this parable mean? Jesus doesn't give us an explanation afterwards like he does some of the parables. And so for us, we have to look at the parable and piece together the context and what Jesus is saying. So it's very obvious that Jesus is the nobleman. The nobleman, the master, is Jesus. And he is telling them that he needs to leave first and then return. And this parable speaks to three different kinds of people. And the interesting thing about this parable is that we are all in it. There are three messages that we can gather from this parable, and they all speak to one of us. The very first one, the first message is that this is a warning to the enemies. A warning to the enemies. This first group of people that we meet are the enemies of Christ. We meet them in verse 14. 
And those are the ones that have essentially said in their hearts, we do not want Christ to reign over us. And we know from Scripture that no matter who you are, Jesus will be king. This, par- this parable speaks to that. Because despite their protests to the higher authority, the nobleman receives the kingdom still. No matter what rebellion is in your heart, Jesus is going to rule. The world is created by him. The world is created for him. Because in the future, Jesus is going to be king no matter what. In Revelation 19, 16, Jesus is given the name King of Kings and Lord of Lords. In Philippians 2, we know that it says that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And so we know for us that Jesus is going to reign no matter what. But for these people, it does not end well for them. They are brutally slaughtered before the king in verse 27. And it's a picture of Revelation 19.20, where Jesus destroys his enemies. Revelation 19.20 to 21, it reads this. And the beast was seized, and with him the false prophet who performed the signs in his presence by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image, these two were thrown alive into the lake of fire, which burns with brimstone. And the rest were killed with the sword, which came from the mouth of him who sat on the horse, and all the birds were filled with their flesh. These two pictures from the parable and from Revelation are quite explicit image of ugly things, of people getting slaughtered. And Jesus tells this story to warn those who are his enemies. And if you find yourself in this category tonight, I want to let you know that this isn't a hopeless situation. You're not bound to this outcome. We live in a world that is godless. We live in a world and society that is godless. And society has screamed, we don't want anything to do with the God of the Bible. He is too harsh. He has too much judgment. And they want nothing to do with him. But we know, we as Christians know, that our God is a good and kind God. If you want to turn with me to Exodus, Exodus 34, Moses is telling God to show him his glory. Exodus 34, verse 6. And as God passes by Moses, he says this about himself. Exodus 34, 6. The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression and sin. Yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children and on the grandchildren to the third and fourth generation. Did you hear that? He's compassionate. He's gracious. He's slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness who forgives sin. There's more to this king than just judgment. But at the same time, a good king and a good God must, must punish the guilty. And who are the guilty? We all are. At some point in time, we all fit into this category of enemies of the king. And before we were Christians, we were enemies 
But God, in his kindness, sent Jesus to seek and to save the lost. Jesus came to die on the cross for your guilt, for my guilt. And three days later, he rose again, proving him to be God and that our sins are actually forgiven. And if we trust in him for the full payment of our sins, we would have life. And that's good news. It's good news because we don't have to fear judgment or punishment. We know that our sins committed against this high and mighty king are forgiven. And so this passage serves as a warning to those who have rejected Christ as king. And although forgiveness and grace is not in this parable, it is nothing new to what Jesus has been preaching. It is nothing new that Jesus would preach about the Son of Man coming to seek and to save the lost. He is He is the good news to those who would listen and to believe. Yet at the same time, this parable would serve as a warning for those who are listening. The second message that this passage would serve is an encouragement to the faithful. Encouragement to the faithful. The parable has two servants. The parable shows two servants who get rewarded for their work. And, And who are these two servants? They are faithful Christians who love the Lord. And just as a side note, this is not a parable that teaches a works-based salvation. Being a good businessman does not give salvation. Doing good works does not save you. These represent faithful believers and shows a picture of the heavenly rewards enabled by God's grace and sovereignty that the Lord will give us in the end. 2 Corinthians 5, if we want to turn there. 2 Corinthians 5, 9 to 10. It says this, 2 Corinthians 5, 9 to 10. Therefore, we also have as our ambition, whether home or absent, to be pleasing to him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body, according to what he has done, whether good or bad. And so it's saying that God is going to reward if they're good, and he's going to punish if they're bad. And back in Luke, verse 16, we'll meet the first servant who comes up to the Lord and says, Your mina has made ten more. Your mina has made ten more. This servant didn't say, look what I've done. Look at all the work that I've accomplished. No, he says... Your mina. What what your mina has done. He gives credit to the master. And because of this, the master is pleased and places him in charge of ten cities. The next one comes up and has five minas and places in charge of five cities. Now let's imagine that one mina is $5,280. A mina was about three months' wages, so California minimum wage is $11.00. Multiply that by 40 hours, and then by 12 for three months, ignoring tax, that gives us 5,280, the number of feet in a mile. And (laughs) you decide on a business, and that one thing you know how to do is sell lemonade. You open your business stand out in the neighborhood, and day in and day out, you sell lemonade. And somehow, by God's grace and sovereignty, by the end of the year, 
you make 5,280 times 10, around 52K. Wow. <laughs> Selling lemonade. The master returns and you're thinking, 52,800 50, is a large sum of money and hopefully I'll be given some of that as a bonus. You present your earnings to your boss and your boss says, good job, I will make you mayor of Los Angeles, Anaheim, Riverside, San Diego, Long Beach, Santa Ana, Irvine, Sun Valley, Santa Clarita, and Van Nuys. And to the other employee, you will be mayor of San Jose, Sacramento, San Francisco, Oakland, and Fremont. That's unexpected. That's the generosity of our Lord. Grace upon grace. He gives us far more than what we would expect. And it's not really about how much each person has accomplished. Each person has, give, has been given the same amount. There are no superhero Christians in this story. There are only the faithful, those who love the Lord. It isn't about the earnings. It is that they were faithful with what little their king gave them. And if you're in this category, which I hope is a majority of you, I hope this serves as encouragement to you to know that you will be rewarded in the future for your faithfulness. And we know that salvation is by grace alone and by faith alone, and that in itself is more than we deserve. But our God is a generous and kind God, and he gives far more than what we can imagine. We've been given the gospel to preach and to proclaim We've been given many opportunities to put Christ on display. We've been given time and money and opportunities here at UCLA. And I hope that you would be faithful in reading God's word, preaching the gospel, reaching the lost, being kind to one another, loving one another, and essentially doing all things to the glory of God. Why? Because you love him. And Jesus is coming soon. And so we need to be faithful for what little we have been given. And finally, we come to the last servant, this last part of the story. Most of the parable seems to actually spend more time talking about this last servant. It's quite clear to us who the enemies are. It's quite clear to us who the faithful servants are. But who is this last servant? Is he just an unfaithful Christian? Is he just a Christian that just gets by and gets to heaven? Is he saved? If we look at verse 20 in Luke, chapter 19, verse 20, the word another is the word heteros. And that actually means a different kind, another kind. If the text wanted us to, wanted to let us know that this third servant was the same as the first two, it could have said the third or the last, but instead it says another. And this indicates that this final servant is not like the other two. He's unfaithful, he's fearful, and what more, he does not seem to love his master. You know, instead of doing business like the other two, he takes what little he has, he puts it in a handkerchief, a piece of cloth, and goes on with his wonderful life. 
You don't store valuables in a piece of cloth. How many of you have had retainers and braces? When you have to eat and you have retainers, what do you do? You take it out. And if you don't have your box with you, you put it in a, you roll it up in a napkin. And then you, you eat your lunch and then you take your tray and you throw everything away. And you've lost your retainer. And then your parents get mad at you that you've wasted money. And so you don't store, a retainer is not even that valuable. You don't store valuable things in a piece of cloth. In the ancient times, you store things in the earth. To secure things, you bury it. In Matthew 13, 44, it talks about a man who finds buried treasure. The ground is a better place to hide things than a napkin or a piece of cloth. And so this servant is not only disobedient because he doesn't use the money, he doesn't spend the money to do anything productive, he's also careless. He's careless about the things that, God, that this king has given him. And then when it came time for him to give an account, he presents what he has done. And instead of being humble or anything, saying, I'm sorry, I was lazy, I put it away, I didn't want to do work, he instead shifts the blame from himself to his master. And he says, you're a harsh guy. And so because you're a harsh guy, I didn't do anything. And if he had any respect for his master, he would have at least put the money in a bank and he would at least made, I don't know, a penny, a penny more with interest. And so in the end, the mina is taken away from this lazy and worthless servant. And Jesus says this about what he has done. I tell you that to everyone who has, more shall be given. But from the one who does not have, even what he has shall be taken away. What does this mean? Who is this servant and who does he represent? This person does not know the Lord. This person is not a Christian. He might look like a Christian. He's counted with the other slaves. He calls himself a Christian, yet at the same time, he acts nothing like the other slaves. The other slaves love their master, and they do their business, and they're obedient to him. Well, this slave, he's disobedient. He views the master in a negative way, and in fact, he even accuses his master of being harsh and a thief. What's most revealing is his last statement in verse 26, which was, to those who have, more will be given, and those who do not have, even what he has, will be taken away. It's not a rich get richer verse, or a poor get poorer verse. If you want to turn to Matthew 13, Jesus explains this a little more. It's in fact why Jesus starts speaking in parables. Matthew 13 Verse 10. And the disciples came to him and said, Why do you speak in parables? Jesus answered them, 
To you it has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been granted. For whomever has to him, more shall be given, and he will have an abundance. But whoever does not have, even what he has, shall be taken away from him. You hear that again? That's the same thing that he said here in Luke. Whoever has, more shall be given. And then in verse 16, he says this in Matthew 13. But blessed are your eyes because they see, and your ears because they hear. For truly I say to you that many prophets and righteous men desired to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. And so those who have, in this phrase, those who have are the disciples of Christ. Those who have are those who follow Christ. And these are those whom the mystery of the kingdom of heaven has been revealed. And this parable doesn't teach a works-based salvation. And so this servant didn't obey this master because he did not love and respect his master. He is the one that had things taken away from him. He is the one who has the mystery of the kingdom of heaven hidden from him, which means he does not know God. He does not truly know our Lord. And if you find yourself in this category, you maybe you grew up in the church, maybe you've been here at GOC for four years, Maybe you have called yourself a Christian your whole life and you don't even know. Either way, this passage is speaking to you. You might call yourself a Christian, but do you actually know the Lord? You know the truth, you've heard the truth, but in your heart, have you humbled yourself and placed your full trust in God to turn your heart of stone into a heart of flesh? And that same hope that is offered to the enemies of Christ is offered to you as well. God's grace is ever abundant. And if only you would examine yourself and turn fully to him in faith, then he would be gracious and kind to give you eternal life. And so in this parable, we've seen three characters. We've seen the enemies of Christ, We've seen the faithful, and then we've seen this last group, the false. And the lesson for this parable is quite clear. Christ is coming back, and we're all going to have to give an account. And Jesus gives this parable as a warning to those who don't know him, a warning to those who think they know him, and an encouragement to those who love him. And we all fit in one of these categories. And so let's not look at eternity and Christ's return like it's far, far, far away. Let's look forward to his return and in the meantime, serve him faithfully. The reward of our faithfulness is this, 1 Corinthians 2, 9. But just as it is written, things which eye has not seen an ear has not heard, and which have not entered the heart of man, all that God has prepared for those who love him. Things we cannot even imagine, God has prepared for those who love him. Jesus is coming soon. Do you know him? Do you love him? I pray and hope for all of you that you would be found 
faithful servants in the end and be able to experience the joy and the rewards of our Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and that it speaks great truths to us. It's a reminder for us that you are coming back to rule and that we will all be held accountable. I pray that you would allow us to see your truth and to love you. I pray for those who don't yet know you, that you would soften their hearts, that you would give them the good news, and that you would ultimately show them who you are. I pray that you would, I pray for those who call themselves Christians but actually do not know you. I pray that you would reveal their heart and their need for you. And for the faithful Christians, I pray that you would continue to allow them to live lives worthy of the calling. I pray that you would allow them to exhibit the gospel, to preach the good news, and to stay faithful in this troublesome and tempting word.